Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be tonight. We started a, a few weeks ago. Uh, we started looking at the book of Ruth, and we, had the, we looked at the uh, overall, the overview, the introduction of the book of Ruth, and then we had a week where we were off because of the ice storm. And then last week, we looked at, at chapter 1. And so we're basically breaking down the book of Ruth into the four different chapters. They all kind of uh, approach a different part of the story. Uh, chapter 1, we, we've broken it down in, in uh, four different W words. The first chapter was weeping. You remember that. And there was so much weeping. There's so much sorrow in the first chapter of, of, the, of the book. But then it ends in the first chapter talking about it was the beginning of a harvest which gives us this, it's sort of a harbinger to, to, to indicate to us that there are some new things coming. And so tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 2, which is what we call, it's act 2 of this story. We, we call it working. Because this is the, uh, the chapter where Ruth is out in the fields and there's some really pretty amazing things that happen during this chapter. So let's begin reading in, in verse 1. We'll read the first three verses and we're going to read different chunks and go back and forth on some of these things. But this is what it says. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, it's something that's kind of interesting here, when you start reading this chapter here, because it's kind of odd when you read that, you realize he, the, the author of Ruth starts off in the very beginning by giving you information that is going to be revealed in the story anyway. Did you notice that? It says this, he had a relative, it starts off by saying that Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then at the, at the very end, it says she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So when we see this kind of things, when, if, 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 if you see this kind of repetition in scripture, if, if a biblical author tells you something, that, that you would learn, in any case, from the story itself, the author almost certainly is trying to get you to focus on that and ask yourself a question. You read that and you say, why is this being highlighted? Why is he, the author bringing this up now when this is information that's going to come out later in the story anyway? How, how will this piece of information proved to be significant in the outworking of God's sovereign plan. And this is true anytime you see this type of pattern all throughout Scripture, this is something you can look at and say, okay, now why was this character or why was this written here when it's written again just a little bit later? It tells you that the author is trying to emphasize something in that passage. And, it's, and you ask yourself what, what it is. I, I'll give you an example of that is in John chapter 1. Because John chapter 1, and I hadn't planned on reading this or anything, but John chapter 1 starts off, you know, we, we know the, how it starts. In the beginning was the Word, and it talks all about Jesus, right? It goes through this whole description of, in uh, the Word, in, it was, in the beginning was with God, and the Word was God, and it goes through this whole description of Him. And then all of a sudden, it switches, 
And it goes to, there was a man named John. And it goes through a couple, two or three short verses about John. Then it goes back to Jesus. And it's very strange structurally, but there's a reason why the author is trying to insert that there. There's something he wants you to see because there's something that, that happens. There's something that they're going to be pointing out that even though it comes out later. So that's just another example. But uh, redundancy, at least in, in biblical narratives, is, is often there for the sake of emphasis. It's trying to show you some point, some, some information, something that they're trying to emphasize. So, and that's certainly true of, of Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Because verse 1 of, of chapter 2 introduces a new character to us. We haven't met Boaz yet, but, but, he, but the author reveals four details about him. One, one, we're told he's a relative of Naomi's husband. And, and, and for those that, any, any reader that may be familiar with Israelite family law and custom, that already might make them begin to, you know, have their interest and their, their hopes raised in this story. Uh, but, but we're told he's from the clan of Elimelech, which is really just kind of a repetition it clarifies the statement that he's a relative of Naomi's husband, tells me, because what was Naomi's husband's name? Elimelech. So it's from the clan of Elimelech. So uh, and we're told, the second thing, we're t the next thing we're told was that he's a man of standing. Now, this can mean a couple of things. It can mean that he's a man of substance or wealth, or it can mean that he is a man who is noble and uh, w w in, re in regard to his character, now, as we read the rest of the story, we find out it's both. Both of those are true with Boaz. And we're told his name. His name is Boaz. And, and all of this, all of this, we would learn in the course of the narrative it, 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 whether or not the author told us that in the, in the beginning. So what's happening here is the narrator is saying to us, keep your eyes fixed on this Boaz. This is a significant character. I want you to understand there's something about this guy that's going to be happening later. This is significant. Uh, and he's saying to us, keep your eyes fixed on Boaz because it may be that he is God's answer to Naomi's prayer, even, in, even if she can't see how he's, how he's working. But, but why are we told this? We're told this because this narrative uh, proceeds at two different levels. In order to give us a sense of how God affects his purposes, Bible narratives sometimes use the literary equivalent of a movie maker's or television producer's split screen technique. Anybody ever seen on television a movie a split screen? You know, and what does it do? It allows you to see something, an event or action or something going on, either from two different perspectives or see two different things, right? So, so... Uh, the writers of, of biblical uh, literature often they they do with words what modern technology can do visually splitting the screen the screen so that we have two different perspectives simultaneously uh, so that uh, and allows us to compare two different actions or events or relate them to each other so when this split split screen technique so to speak is used we're being we're being encouraged to to read the narrative from two different points of view. What are those two different points of view? The human and the divine. 
because there are events that are taking place in the story of these human beings. They're human events, human actions. But at the same time, as those things are going on, laying over the top of it is divine action. It's the sovereignty of God. It's what he's accomplishing even through those, those events that they're going through. One point of view is that of the participants in the drama. And, and they have little to no knowledge of what God is doing in and through their lives. They cannot see the end from the beginning. That's the, that's the thing. See, we look back on these stories. Sometimes, honestly, sometimes we're a little hard on, on biblical characters because we're like, we look at them and say, why, why can't they just have faith? It's because they couldn't see the end of the story and you've read the end of the story. So it's a little different when you're walking through it, isn't it? And so they have little to no knowledge of what God is doing. They can't see the end from the beginning. Ruth has no idea that she's going to be in the, the, the lineage of future kings of this nation, much less the savior of the world. She has no idea of that. They, they may know that God is sovereign. However, they, they have no idea how he's going to demonstrate his sovereignty in their lives. And I just want to point out, that is the position we ordinarily occupy in our lives. We know God's at work. We know God's in control. However, in the middle of everything that's going on, we can't see what he's, what, always what he's doing. We do not have direct access to the mind of God to know every detail of his plans and purposes. He often shows us bits and pieces of it as he did in the, in the Old Testament, as he did even in the New Testament. But we don't know all the details. Uh, and so we, we have to understand and look at our life the same way that, that, yes, we see it from a human perspective, but we have to remember that there is also another perspective, that there's something else going on. And the, the narrator here in this story knows what God is doing because he can look backwards from the vantage point of the conclusion of the story. We know what God's doing through the story of Ruth. We read it and, and sometimes it makes it sort of lose the sting a little bit because we know the happy ending. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, we read chapter one with all this weeping and this sorrow and, and we read it and we sort of take it with a grain of salt because we know there's something greater coming once we turn the page. But, but for, for Ruth, if we didn't know the end of the story, you might read that and you might be moved very deeply because you would re relate with, uh, with what she's going through, what, what Naomi's going through, with what's happening in their lives. And, and, uh, and, and, but, but because we can see it from the end, just like the narrator of this story, we, we have a different vantage point. So, so we, as, just as the narrator, can see the footprints of God running all through this story. Uh, which, which it's interesting uh, that the writer only mentions God twice. The narrator only mentions the name of God twice. But the characters in the story mention the name of God multiple times. Which tells us very clearly that the people in the story are aware of the sovereignty and the presence of God in, working in their lives. But we can see the footprints of God running through the story. Um, and we can see the trajectory of what God is doing in order to fill his purposes. And we've got to remember, we, we also are involved in the drama of God's unfolding purposes. Um, frequently, we cannot understand what God is doing. Anybody ever been in that place where you just cannot understand 
what God is doing. You ever walk through a situation where you said, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't see how this can be good in any way. I mean, if you haven't, you're probably young, frankly. You know, I mean, an example of that was years ago when, when uh, my niece was diagnosed with kidney cancer. She was, I think, 12 years old at the time, 10 or 12, somewhere in there. Nine. Oh, she was even younger than I. Thank you for that, Julie. Uh, she was even younger than I re- realized. But, you know, and, and in the moments like that, you think, okay, what does a nine-year-old battling cancer have to do with the plans and the purposes and the glory of God? I don't get this. Now, she's, she's well now. She's healed, so the cancer's gone and no recurrence of it. So, so we can see something differently now, but we, we get in those places where we, we're walking through this narrative and we're walking through our life story and, and we're walking out the plans and the purposes of God and we cannot at times, there are times when we just simply can't understand what God is doing. There are things in life that just don't make sense from a human perspective, but we see in the scriptures and in this story we, in, that we're looking at in, this, in the book of Ruth, we see that, that, that God is saying to us that God is on his throne and he's working out his, his perfect purposes. We see it in scripture. That's the key. See, a lot of us, we want to we wanna live our lives by the seat of our pants. We, we live our lives by the emotions that we feel or you know, especially, uh, frankly, in a Pentecostal world, sometimes that's the temptation. But we've got to remember it's about what, what God reveals about himself in the scripture. Scripture sheds, sheds light on the darkness of our lives. And it's not because we have the ability to interpret the movements of God, but because his word gives us wisdom. It gives us insight into his character. It's, it's, as it says in the Psalms, it's a lamp unto our feet. It illumines our understanding of God's ways. And and thus, when we are in this or that situation, whatever it might be, feeling our way in the darkness, we're not able to see his hand at work. We're not not able to trace his design in the situation. We can't interpret his purposes, but we nevertheless know the kind of things that he does because we see it in scripture. And even more than that, because we see it in scripture, we know the kind of God he is. And see, if I know the kind of God he is, then even when I can't understand what he's doing or what his purpose is in a situation, I can have faith in him. I can trust him because I know the kind of God he is. Does that make sense? We, we trust God because he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, we trust God because he's the God of the apostles. And we read their stories in scripture, but we also know that we can trust him because he's the God who has done marvelous things in the lives of very ordinary people, myself included. So Ruth requested that Naomi allow her to go into the fields and, and, and pick up the leftover grain. It's, it's called gleaning in the fields and, and the law uh, gleaning was specifically put in the law by God because it was it was designed to show the people of Israel uh, the compassion of God, to show that he cares for the poor, he cares for the downtrodden, he cares for the foreigner, that he loves the foreigner just as, just as much. And, and so uh, it, it expressly allows the poor and, and, uh, and the sojourner to, 
the, the right to glean in the fields. And what does it mean to glean? Well, let me read some scripture from uh, the, the Old Testament and then, and then it'll, it'll, what it means to glean will come a lot more, become a lot more clear. Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over a vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So in other words, he's saying, listen, when you're harvesting, don't go and try to clear out every corner and all the way to the edges and make sure that every stalk of wheat is picked up. When you're going through your vineyard, don't, don't worry about trying to get every single little grape. Leave some there because there are poor people who can come through this field later and they can get enough food to sustain their life. We also read it in Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. Among you. I'm the Lord your God. Then Deuteronomy 24. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. See what he's saying? there? If you're going through and you realize, oh, I, I, I left some on the ground there. He says, don't go back and get it. Just leave it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So you're, not, you're leaving it to feed them, but in, in showing compassion for them, he's going to bless you. That's what he's saying there. Verse 20, when you beat the olives from your tree, same thing. Do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the father, fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So over and over again, we see this, that, that God says to the owners of the land, the people who, who are the farmers, the vineyards, vintners, I guess, I don't know what they're called, but anyway, they, he says to them, don't worry about trying to get every little bit, every scrap of, of the harvest. He says, I'll take care of you if you'll leave this behind for those who need help. Now, the problem was, is the same as it is today, human nature tends to be greedy. Have you noticed that? And so the owners, the problem was that the owners of the fields were not always cooperative. You can even see this at times in the Old Testament, the prophets would condemn the, the, the farmers, the people of the land, because they were not leaving anything. They were not taking care of the poor. So they weren't, all, weren't always cooperative. They didn't always do what they were supposed to do. And because of that, then those that were, go, that were going through the fields and gleaning the fields, uh, what would happen is that a hard day's work under the hot sun frequently netted only a very, very small amount of grain. Well, Ruth seemed to be aware of the landowners and their attitudes, and she she makes it clear she hopes to find a field to glean where she would find favor. Her, her desire to find a field where, where she would be favorably received, may, may, it may have reflected the, her knowledge of how the poor were frequently treated by hostile landowners. She may have realized that that's just the way people acted, even though that's not what the law said. Or, or it may have been compounded by the fact that she was aware of her of being a foreigner that she was an outsider. She didn't belong here. So it says that Ruth went out to find a field and quote unquote, by chance, found herself gleaning in the fields of Boaz. She has no idea who Boaz is. She doesn't even know, she doesn't know the lay of the land. She just knows she found this field and, 
And in Hebrew, it's translated in the NIV, it says, as it turned out, she found, and uh, it literally means, here's the literal translation of the phrase, the happenstance that happened to her, um, and it's, it's like the author is really almost being sarcastic, he's really trying to show out, show here that, uh, uh, almost like what we would do where we'd say, well, it just so happened, you know, is they're trying to show the, the irony of this, that it wasn't just an accident. Uh, the ESV translates it, which ESV is an excellent uh, literal translation of, of uh, the Bible. But it translates, it translates it as, she happened to come to. And, and uh, the, the suggestion that Ruth's encounter with Boaz was, a, was blind chances, it's offset by the reality that when you read out throughout the, the story of, of, the, of Ruth, you see God's providential guidance all the way through. So we know that the writer doesn't believe it was, it was by accident. Um, now, now, from the perspective of Ruth and Boaz, the meeting was accidental, wasn't it? They didn't plan it. They didn't know what was going. But it was not accidental from God's perspective. God was doing something, even though Ruth wasn't aware of it. God ever done something in your life and let you look back later and you didn't even realize he was at work, but then you saw it? It happens all the time. Maybe the writer was, was subtly expressing his theological conviction that God directs even the quote-unquote accidental. How often do we attribute events as coincidences and accidents when, <coughs> excuse me, when they were really the sovereignty of God? When God was doing something, when God was speaking, God was moving, and we didn't even realize it. I'll give you a really kind of a dumb example. It's back from our days when we were pastoring in Reno, when Erin was very small, probably, uh, I mean, she was maybe been two or less. But um, we, we, I went and got a bike, and Julie already had her bike, and we were going out bike riding. And, um, and I remember... Uh, we, we got this seat that, would, that I would, would attach to the back of her bicycle. And so when I did that, I, I bought a little bike helmet for, for, uh, for Aaron and uh, Julie, I think, already had her bike helmet. And I was out there, I was at the store and I was getting this stuff. And, and I was like, I'm not going to wear a bike helmet. I've lived my whole life. I've ridden a bi bikes my whole life without a bike helmet. And, and there was just this something in, in my head, just kind of this little voice that just said, if you're going to tell your daughter to wear a bike helmet, you better be wearing one or you're going to be a hypocrite. You got to teach her by how you act, not just what you say. Now she's one or two. She's not going to know the difference, but that voice, that thought came to my mind. I thought, okay, I'll get me a bike helmet. I'm going to look stupid, but I'm going to get a bike helmet. You know, that was just, it was all because I was vain. All right. So anyway, we, we went out riding this bike and, uh, uh I, I was on mine. Julie was on hers and she had Aaron. And so because she had Aaron on back, she was, she was going at a moderate pace. Um, and at the time I was going to the gym a lot, so I was in pretty good shape and I was trying to get my heart rate up. So I would, I would pedal really hard and get out way in front and then turn around and pedal hard back. So I was getting a lot of extra exercise coming in, going back and forth that way. And we, we got down, we lived on Geiger grade road. And at the bottom of this hill, there was a road leading into this kind of a subdivision area. And so we started riding on there and um, um, Julie was there, and I took off hard again. Well, the whole time when I whenever I was doing this and I was pedaling hard, 
I could hear something sounded funny. And what I didn't know was the bike that I bought, which, you know, I should, you should never buy a bike at Walmart. That's probably the problem. Uh, but, but what happened, well, the problem was the, the sprocket, I guess it's called on the front sprocket, was warped. And so every time it was going around, that, that sprocket was kind of moving like this. And so it was putting pressure. And what I'd hear is that chain, when it would hit the, the little tooth on that sprocket, it would pop on. When, when, uh, when it had that pressure on there. Well, I was going and going and going and pushing hard. And one time, instead of popping on, the chain popped off. And now, all of a sudden, I'm standing up, pedaling as hard as I can. And as I'm starting to push down with my right foot, that chain pops off, and now there is no resistance. Well, guess what happens when you're standing on a pedal, pushing as hard as you can, and there's no resistance? All of a sudden, whoop! And I went over the handlebar, and I mean, listen, I had road rash like you would not believe. Man, did it ever hurt. But here's the thing. I got up, and I took my helmet off as I was sitting there, you know, because I was in a lot of pain, and I took it off just sitting there, and then I looked at it and saw that in the side of the helmet, right in line with my temple, was a huge dent where my head hit the curb. Now, I could say, oh, what a coincidence. I was so lucky that I, that I wore a bike helmet. The first time I ever wore a bike helmet in my life. Or I can look at that and say, that was God speaking to me in, the, in Walmart, and I didn't even know it. That was the sovereign voice of God. That was the Holy Spirit looking ahead and saying, I'm going to do something now. You don't, you don't even know it's me talking but I'm going to do something and, and it's not going to be by chance. See, I think, I think if we begin to understand the principle of this, that, that there are things that appear to be accidents and they are accidents. You know, God didn't cause that sprocket, that chain to, to, to pop off there or anything, but, but, but it was no accident that I had a bike helmet on for the first time in my life. And, and, and when we begin to look at life this way, we can begin to see the hand of God in different circumstances and situations, when especially looking back, sometimes you can see it, the hand of God in those in those situations, um, and, and you don't even, you know, and, and we can see the hand of God, and it begins to give glory to God and, and helps us to appreciate the fact that God is in in charge in our lives, and so the the author here by doing this he, he's he's trying to help us view our lives as though they're being played out on the split screen in which we see both the sovereignty of god and we see all uh, his lordship all over all the details of our lives in in the midst of our confusion of our happenstances of, our, of all the surprises of life we, there is a sovereign God in heaven whose hand is upon us at every moment of every day. And there is a God who reigns over every inch of the universe in which we live. So because of that, we know that nothing just happens. You know, and, and I'm not saying, I mean, there is a such thing as there are things that, that happen in life because we're in a broken world. But, but I'm just saying that even in those situations, it's not just accidentally happening and God is not, have, not 
He, he's going to work through it whether he caused it or not. That's a way of, a way of saying it. He's going to, uh, you know, I mean, we're told not even a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge. He knows these things. All things come to pass under the sovereign wisdom and purpose of the Heavenly Father. And, and we know, according to Romans chapter 8, that, he, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who, are, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that is where I see the sovereignty of God working out in the circumstances of life because when those things happen, we know God's still in charge and He's going to bring good out of it. Now, it may not mean that I'm going to enjoy you know, the results, but it means that it's going to be good for me. Anybody ever had anything that was good for you that you didn't enjoy? Can you say broccoli? <laughs> no, I like broccoli. Uh, whatever, you know, that's just the way it is. Can you say discipline? See, somebody said that's a dirty word. Yeah, but, but listen, that's exactly why we can be quietly confident. Not because we know exactly what God is doing in this unpredictable world, but because we know that what is unpredictable to us is already known by Him. He, he, has, he has written His purposes for us in His book. He has numbered our days before one of them came into being. And, and biblical faith, it, it, is, it is not you know, where we work ourselves up by exciting music or by corporate worship experiences that soon fade because such emotional dependency always uh, ha has to have the next fix and it can, never, uh, it can never live in a real world effectively. But biblical faith, by contrast, is responding to the divine initiative as expressed through the words of the Scripture, believing that what God says to, is, <clears throat> says to be true, <clears throat> excuse me, believing what God says to be true, and then acting consistently upon it. It's, it's, uh, biblical faith is far more a matter of activity than it is feeling, just like love is. Love is 1% feeling and 99% doing. It, it, it means that God, if God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And really the truth is, if God says it, that settles it whether I believe it or not. <laughs> let's, let's read on, verse 4. Then, just then, there's another happenstance kind of word. Just then, Boaz arised from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab from, with Naomi. She, she said, now the overseer is saying what she said to him. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves among the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So it starts off by saying, just then, again, it's in the sense of what the writer is saying here is that, that Boaz arrived at just the right time to be able to see Ruth. So once again, we see the sovereign hand of God at work to bring these two individuals together. Uh, the, the author is, again, he's saying, look, did you see what's happening here? Keep your eyes glued on this man because he shows up at just the right time. It just just so happens that Ruth is gleaning in the field of this man named Boaz, and, and it just so happens that Boaz himself shows up at just the right time. Coincidence? Hardly. Hardly. 
Boaz, what happened? He came from the city, came from Bethlehem to see how the work was going. We're told he greeted his workers by saying, the Lord be with you. And that already gives us insight into his character because he's not out there, you know, cracking the whip and telling everybody, hey, you better get to work, get the job done. But there's this positive environment there. He's a, he's a kind man who doesn't abuse his authority. His speech from beginning to end is characterized by grace. And it's really no wonder that, that his workers respond with a blessing of their own. And they say, the, the Lord bless you, Boaz. Well, anyway, immediately Boaz notices Ruth and he asks his foreman, Who, whose young woman is that? So he, he already assumes that Ruth being, you know, the age, marrying age that she was, that, that she was obviously a stranger. So uh, he assumes that she would not be independent, that she would be married to somebody. She must belong to somebody. She must be somebody's wife or at least engaged to some, somebody somewhere. But, but, but also the question could mean who, whose daughter or, or wife is she uh, or, you know, to which clan does she belong? That could also be interpreted that way. But in any, any case, whichever it is, he knows for whatever reason, she is out of place among his workers in the field. She stands out among them for some reason. And the foreman identified Ruth as the Moabite woman who had returned with Naomi. Now, Boaz had, had, had heard about the return of these two women. That was, remember, that was the buzz among the town uh, though he apparently had not encountered them. He hadn't seen Ruth yet. And the, the foreman went on and told about Ruth's uh, request, which was very, very courteous for her request for permission to glean after the reapers had completed their work, even, even though uh, the law actually allowed for her to the, the right to glean. She didn't have to ask for permission, but she asked anyway. And, and then he describes her, makes, makes it clear that she's a very hard worker. She's been there the implication is that she's basically been there since the crack of dawn and she hasn't taken a break except for a very short time to sit in the shade and get a little, little rest. So she's a hard worker taking a little bit of time to rest. Then verse eight. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink, uh, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have feel, filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Then when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for, uh, for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So this good report from his foreman about Rose, uh, Ruth's uh, uh, work ethic and 
it just piques his interest all the more. And so Boaz, he goes and he talks with Ruth and he greets her by saying, my daughter, which reminds us that Boaz was older than Ruth. He encouraged her not to go to other, other fields to glean, but to remain with his servant girls and to work alongside them. And what would happen is in the field, you would have men who wielded the sickles and they would, they would be walking through, cutting everything down and the women would be following along behind them, tying the sheaves into bundles. And, and, and he told her, listen, just stay and work among mine. Don't even, he's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't have to, to stay back behind all the time. You, you can stay up there right close to the, to the women who are working for me. Right there, very close to the harvest. And so this is already a significant gesture on his part. And as further proof of his concern for her and his desire to protect her from harm, Boaz told Ruth that he had ordered the men not to touch her. Now that just translated just means to reach or to strike or to molest her in any way. Basically, they said, you leave her alone. So, you know, as we hear this story, you, you begin to see the, the narrator, the writer of the story the, of telling us what happened. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like he's just weaving this in there where you begin to say, hey, maybe there's something going on here. Maybe there's a future here with this guy. Why is he being so nice to her out of the blue here? And, and he goes on, he told her that he could drink, that she could drink from the water jars that the men had filled for their use. Now, this was a privilege that was not ordinarily permitted to gleaners. They were on their own with their water. And, and, and you got to remember the culture and the times in which they live. In their cultural context, normally foreigners would be the ones who would draw the water for the Israelites. And women would be the ones who draw the water for men. But Boaz's authorization for Ruth was to drink from the water that his men had drawn and so that is indeed absolutely extraordinary. This is a big, big thing that's happening here. It's a big moment. And that's why Ruth was so overwhelmed with Boaz's generosity. Because she's, she's a, a, a widow. She's a foreigner. Which, by the way, I, I was th I've been thinking about this. I think it's significant to me. You remember who Boaz's mother was? We talked about it last week. Rahab, his mom was a foreigner. I can't help but think that maybe he, his heart was already kind of softened toward the foreigner because he knew his mom had been brought in from outside the, the nation of Israel. But she's, she's overwhelmed by this. Her response, though, is very typical of, of ancient Near Eastern expressions of gratitude and humility. And it may seem exaggerated to us, but... She bowed herself down with her face all the way to the ground before Boaz. And she just asked in amazement why she, a foreigner of all people, have found favor in his eyes. See, Boaz had, had dignified this destitute widow from a foreign land and treated her as a significant person. He treated her as if she mattered. She, he treated her as on par socially with his hired hands, which were presumably Israelites. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
So even though Boaz didn't recognize her, when he found out who she was, he knew about her because he had heard about what she had done. He, he, he told her, I know the, about your kindness to Naomi. Now remember, Naomi is married to one of his relatives. So he, he knows the situation and, 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 he, and he says, I, I know all about it. How you, you abandoned everything you've ever known. You abandoned your own people. You, you left your mother and your father behind in order just to, to come and live with people that you have not known and to live in a foreign land and to take care of this widow. And you're a widow yourself. And so Boaz pronounced a blessing on Ruth, uh, not only for a sacrificial to Naomi, sacrificial loyalty to Naomi, but I, but I can see in here he blessed her especially for her acceptance of the God of Israel because he said, he said may you be richly rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that, that, that phrase pictures a tiny bird snuggling under the wings of its mother. It's a picture of God as a protector of his people. Then read again, verse 13, Ruth's second response. She said, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She said, you have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. So Ruth responded with true humility and undoubtedly with some surprise, you know, that Boaz would speak such comforting words to someone like her who, who didn't even have the standing of, of, of a servant girl before him. And the word that she used for servant girl literally describes uh, a woman on the very lowest social level. She says, I'm not, I don't have the standing of anybody of the lowest person in your culture, the lowest woman in your culture. I don't have that standing. And yet you're being, you've been kind to me. I don't understand it. I don't get it, but thank you. And, and, uh, uh, and she's totally amazed that, that, that the differences of race or class did not stifle Ruth Boaz's compassion toward her. Then verse 14, we read at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. I love this whole story here. This part of the story, have some bread and dip it in, in the wine vinegar. And then she sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. So all day long, Boaz is showing, you know, this interest and the, the, the author of the story is showing us that he has interest, but it just keeps increasing as it goes along. And now, you know, finally it's time for lunch break and Boaz is like, hey, 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 Ruth, you want to have lunch? You know, he said, why don't you come over? I got, I got plenty of, I got a big lunch. I want to share my lunch with you. Why don't you come and sit down with me? You know, and so he shares the noon meal, it's bread and wine, uh, wine vinegar and roasted grain. And Boaz himself served her as she sat with his reapers. And, and we're told that she ate until she was satisfied. She, listen, as a widow, that's something you don't expect to do in their culture. You're, you're, you're as widows in their culture, scraped by moment by moment, day by day. And so she never expected going out that day that she was going to have a lunch that was going to fill her up to where she just couldn't eat anymore. She thought she was going to go out, find enough grain for, for, for her and Naomi to be able to scrape by for another day, maybe two days, and she was going to be out there gleaning in that harvest again. Then in verse 15, it gets even better. 
As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Now, I, and we're not told whether Ruth heard this, but, but, I, I, but uh, I can't help but maybe she caught at least a little bit of wind of what, what he was saying. But he, he, here's the orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't rep, reprimand her. You, you see that? Let her gather among the sheaves, not just back behind where you've already. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke, rebuke her. He's saying, listen, give her a little extra. I don't care if, hey, if you want to, if you're, if you're harvesting and you drop a little extra one there, that's cool. That's good. You do that. So Boaz, he orders them to leave the, uh, let her glean among the, she the sheaves, not just picking up grain that they accidentally dropped, uh, as, as they reap and they, and they told her, listen, don't you do anything to embarrass her. And, the, and, the, and he told them to pull these extra stocks from the bundle and leave them behind for her to pick, it up, pick her up. And, and what we see here is Boaz is going way beyond the requirements of the law. He is being supremely gracious is a great word. He is showing grace. And that's what grace does. Grace, mercy uh, doesn't give you what you do deserve when you deserve to punishment. Grace gives you something you don't deserve. This is, this is grace here. Boaz is demonstrating grace by giving her all this extra that she does not deserve. The law does not, does not give her the right to any of that stuff. And, and, and again, it just continues to show that he has special interest in this woman. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it, it amounted to an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eat, eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth worked that whole day, the first day of gleaning. All the way in the evening, and then we're told that she, 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 she took the, the, the barley and she beat it out until she had uh, separated the, green, the, the grain from the, from the chaff. And she gathered that all up and, and apparently had some kind of bag to carry it in. And, and her gleanings measured, we're told, about an ephah of barley, which is uh, about one-half to two-thirds of a bushel. And it's estimated that it would have weighed any somewhere between 29 and 50 pounds. This is a lot of food. And an and ordinary gleaner 
could not, in, in no way, they would never have possibly dreamed that they could acquire uh, that, that large of a quantity in a single day. I mean, she had probably gathered enough to last Naomi and, and her for several weeks now. And, and it shows how Boaz's instructions to his reapers aided Ruth. He, what he told them to do was a huge help to her. But you know what it also shows us? It also shows how diligently Ruth had worked. Because she, she did a lot of work to gather that after they left it. So, so after this whole day, Ruth returns to Bethlehem to Naomi's house. And, and, you know, I'm sure she just showed up beaming. She was so proud. And she showed her mother-in-law that she, well, all that she had gleaned that day. And, and, and I just imagine Naomi's jaw dropping, you know. She's just shocked at this. And then she said, wait, wait, wait. I got, I got some leftover lunch for you. And gives her, her lunches, leftovers from lunch for her to eat. And I mean, Naomi must have been just amazed. I just try to picture her face as her, you know, her, her jaws like laying on the ground. And she's like, what in the world is going you, you just been gleaning? Did you steal this, Ruth? What's going on here? What's happening here? But so Naomi, she says, Ruth, where in the world were you gleaning? Where did you get this? And, and, uh, and, and she, it, it, even before she knew who it was, she just offered this hasty blessing. Well, God bless whoever you were gleaning, whoever owns this field. And then Ruth says, well, you know, I, I'll tell you who it was. It was a guy named Boaz. It was his field. And on, on learning the name of their generous benefactor, then she, she gives, Naomi gives him, a, pronounces a second blessing on him. But I think it was that moment where all of a sudden Naomi's wheels start turning a little bit. Because, you know, she said, she added to, where uh, not only was grateful for his kindness, but she added for the benefit of Ruth, she says, oh, by the way, you know, you know, he's a, a near relative. He's a close relative. And in fact, he could be a kinsman redeemer. Um, and so from that moment on, I think Naomi probably worked some little mother-in-law magic in there to, to, to uh, you know, anticipating the potential outcome of this event. So. But she, she immediately began to recognize the potential of Boaz as becoming a kinsman redeemer. And we talked a little bit before about that whole idea of a kinsman redeemer. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But the duties of a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer uh, could take action in a number of different situations. They were responsible for avenging the death of a murdered relative. Uh, because, you know, back before Jesus came, it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so if you, if you killed my relative... I had, if I was the kinsman redeemer, I had the right as that close relative to come and take a life from you, a life for a life. Um, they they had also had the duty of marrying a childless widow of a deceased brother. That's the Leveret law that we've talked about. They had the responsibility of buying back family land that had been sold. So if a family member uh, got in, in dire straits and they sold their property, it was up to them to buy it back so that that property would stay in the family. And then they also had the responsibility of buying back a family member uh, who had sold themselves into servanthood, so to speak. You know, if they owed a debt, often they would become what we would call an indentured servant, where they would uh, put themselves into servitude to a person until that debt was paid off. Well, uh, Kinsman Redeemer had the responsibility 
of actually paying that debt off to buy their freedom. And then uh, also had the responsibility of looking after needy and helpless members of the family. And so in, in all of this, I think Naomi, you know, she begins to recognize the sovereignty of God in Ruth's meeting with Boaz. And, and, and so she says to Ruth, she says, you know, I think that's a really good idea. You should just stay with Boaz, stick close to the women, you know, that work in his field. Uh, it's safe for you. And I think she didn't say the second part where she was saying, I think there might be something here that could be happening. Uh, and so Ruth followed Naomi's counsel and stayed close to Boaz's servants. And it, we're told that she stayed and gleaned in those fields till both the barley and wheat harvests were finished. We, don't, we sometimes don't catch the length of time of the book of Ruth. But those two harvest seasons, because barley and wheat uh, were planted at the same time in that region of the world in the, in the fall. But harvest would come. Barley uh, matured more quickly, so the barley, barley harvest would come, and then on the heels of that, the wheat harvest would come, and uh, those two harvest seasons together would have lasted for around seven weeks or so. So there's a period of time here where all of these events take place. Now I want to close with this. I want to, I want to close by looking at some pictures of Christ that we see in Boaz. And the first one is that like Boaz, Christ welcomes us even though we are foreigners and we have no right to expect anything from him. Ruth had no privilege. She had no right to expect anything from Boaz. And yet he showed grace to her. He gave her uh, things and privileges that she had no right to claim. He just gave it to her out of grace. And that's what Christ does for us. He welcomes us into the family. He says, hey, you, you know, you're going to be a child of God, even though we were foreign, not only foreigners, but we were enemies of God. And we have no right to expect anything from him. And yet he gives it to us. Second is Christ shows kindness and compassion on us, even though we don't deserve it. Third, Christ serves as the protector of his people. Boaz told the men of the field, don't touch her. You stay away from her. And the implication there is, if you don't, you're going to answer to me. In the same way, Christ is our protector. He shields us from those things that, that, uh, that would destroy us. Uh, next one is that Christ notices us in the middle of the crowd. And he reaches out to us in love and compassion. We're not just a face in the crowd among the millions of people but he sees us individually like Boaz saw Ruth. And the last one is regardless of our race, regardless of our social standing, regardless of who we are or what, where we've been or what we've done, Christ still loves us. And in Boaz, we see these pictures of Christ, of a gracious, loving benefactor who, 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 was willing to give us what we don't deserve and pay the price so that we, and we'll see that price paid a little bit later on in the book of Ruth, we pay the price to redeem us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your, your word and I thank you for this beautiful story. And it's a story of hope and love and grace that takes place in the middle of a time of darkness, in the days of the judges. And God, 
we see your grace and your hope and your love in the midst of a time of darkness. This world is so dark. And yet, God, your grace and your love, your mercy, your beauty shines brighter than all. And I pray, Lord, that not only would we bask in that, not only would we embrace that and, and enjoy that, but, Lord, that we would make that known. Because I know that the grace that you have shown to me, you also want to show to the, to the worst sinner that I've ever met. You want to show that grace to people in this world that are, that are running from you, people that, that even consider themselves enemies of, of you, that you want them to see your love. You want them to see your grace. You want them to understand the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to, to make your word known, that we make it known that there is a kins, kinsman redeemer. There is one who, by his grace, has paid our price so that we can enjoy the privileges of being children of God. And we give you thanks for all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.